Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today we are continuing our trek through human techno history, and we're going to begin with the Flintstones. Okay. Uh, if you've ever watched The Flintstones, the old uh, you know, 1960s uh, American cartoon, you're probably familiar with their over-the-top cartoon world in which, uh, you know, you have you have these cavemen, but they're also it's also like a commentary to a limited extent on 1960s American culture. And they live alongside dinosaurs and they utilize them to power pretty much every aspect of their society. Is the satirical element there if I've only seen the Flintstones' Viva Rock Vegas? <laughs> uh, probably. Yeah, I think so. Because they, uh, if I remember correctly, those live-action adaptations did put a lot of emphasis on the dinosaur and prehistoric creature-based technology. Oh, yeah. Clearly, that's the big draw of the series is the curiosity. What kind of dinosaur is going to be playing the role of a toilet today? Yeah, because while they didn't use dinos to power everything, uh, for instance, they did insist on footing their own ridiculous stone cars around town. Yeah, I love that. Uh, they had a typewriter that was you know, a mere stone machine, kind of like a cross between a, a typewriter and a stone xylophone or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they also used, uh, of course, that would be, what is it, a lithophone, actually. It's not a, a, a there is a name for a stone xylophone. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but it was, of course, more complicated, ridiculously complicated uh, uh, in the Flintstones. But then they, they also used, just to name a few inventions, the following. Uh, and uh, let's go back and forth on these, Joe. Okay. Uh, a sauropod-powered construction crane device. A stegosaur-based fire truck. Theropod-based mobile stairs. Oh, like uh, at the airport. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A small dinosaur that they used as a can opener. Yep. Uh, mo- uh, this one's really famous, and I know they use this one in the live-action film. Uh, a garbage disposal dinosaur that just lives underneath the counter. Uh-huh. I remember this, actually. They were like, the garbage disposal's acting up, and he opens up the cabinets and, like, yells at it. Yeah. Uh, but they've also got a, a record player that's a turtle and a hummingbird. Yeah, it's like the hummingbird is the, the needle, of course, and the mm-hmm. turtle is somehow spinning the record. Uh, wait a minute. Were there hummingbirds? In, wait a minute. This is ridiculous to say You're asking too many anyway, questions Because there the were definitely not humans <laughs> when, coexisting with dinosaurs. Uh, they had a mammoth-based uh, uh, system of running water. Didn't they also have a tiny mammoth that was like the vacuum cleaner? They used its they trunk did. as the hose? Or maybe it's young. I don't know how this worked. Uh-huh. Uh, there was also a I'm not sure if it was a bird or a pterosaur-based camera. So, like, you hold up the camera to take the picture, and the small winged creature uses its beak to then uh, chisel the image into a piece of stone. That's funny. It's some kind of bird as a dishwasher. It was like a pelican. Yeah, yeah, it looked a lot like a pelican. And then, of course, if you need a kitchen knife, what are you going to do? Use a sawfish. Why not a rock? <laughs> Why not a sh- like a flint stone? It's, it's, it's there in the name, the more flint. It's <laughs> hilarious if it is an actual swordfish, I guess. But that defeats the purpose. I mean, why you would use an animal in place of a machine is that an animal is complex and has moving parts and can generate motive power. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you just need a knife or something, it seems like real Stone Age technology would work just as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, And then, then of course, there's the, the added fact that they have a pet dinosaur named Dino who is just there for companionship. 
Now, all of this is ridiculous, and even today we watch it and we laugh at it because it's a ridiculous exaggeration of animal labor. Each dinosaur or prehistoric creature is highly specialized. So you know, either the humans of the Flintstones just found the right animals to perform these very specific functions, uh, or like us real-life humans, they bred them to encourage certain traits, traits that would make them ideal for highly specific specialized tasks such as as living under your sink and eating all of your scraps. That's right. And to explore this concept further today, we're going to look at a real historical example, uh, certainly not the only example of an animal bred for a certain job within the house, uh, pre- providing some kind of motive power. Of course, we know farm animals, draft animals, pack animals have been doing this kind of thing for millennia. But today we're going to be looking at a very strange specific case from history, the turnspit dog, a breed of domestic dog that is bred to run around a small wheel to power a rotisserie. Yes, and this is this is this is amazing. I was I had not heard of this before. Uh, so this was like suddenly it's like suddenly realizing the Flintstones were real to a certain extent. Uh, but so, but this is going to be a great episode as well because it's not just going to be about this dog. It's going to be about sort of uh, two or three additional technologies that factor in to this period in time in which dog labor was used to help cook big chunks of meat. Right. So I guess first uh, we always ask the question here, what came before this invention? So obviously we should look at the dog itself. And the dog in a way, if you sort of, if you sort of squint, it is sort of a human invention. Mm-hmm. I mean obviously it's a product of nature. So we like – we didn't create, you know, canines generally. But the domestic dog and the domestic dog breeds that exist – have in many ways been guided by human hands to greater and lesser extents. Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily a situation where a, a prehistoric, uh, uh, you know, m- member of a, of a human society said, that is a good wolf creature out there. I have a few pointers for what we might change in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is essentially the process that ends up taking place. So, yes, before you can have a dog-powered meat-spinning grill machine, you have to have a domestic dog. And in brief, the domestic dog dates back an estimated 12,000 years to the Near East. Before the cat, before the sheep, before the goat, and before the horse, the dog may be man's best friend, and it is certainly one of his oldest uh, non-human friends. It is the oldest recognizably domestic animal. And we know they were used uh, some 11,000 years ago in post-glacial Europe by hunter-gatherers, and they were almost certainly used in hunting. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, it's sometimes questioned why humans didn't actually domesticate the dog sooner than this. And one idea is that there was even more incentive to domesticate these, you know, the wild wolf-like creatures into the domesticated dog in the post-glacial world because you increasingly then had to track wounded animals that you've wounded during this, you know, the, the, the hunt through wooded regions, increasingly wooded regions as the forests return. And a dog's superior sense of smell could make a huge difference in that task. So the dog was a pre-farming domestic species, and that's something that's really essential to, to note because the cat, 
Uh, I think we touched on this before, if not on invention, then on stuff to blow your mind. You know, the cat comes about as a domesticated species in the post-farming world because of the post-farming surplus of food. Right. So in the in the post-farming world, you might have, say, stores of grain or other foods in a settled location that you're not moving around from, and those might attract, say, rats or something mm-hmm. like that that would get into your grain, and then the cat can follow the rats. Right. And then these various other species, many of them, of course, are food species that we domesticated so, in, so as to uh, control them and not have to hunt them anymore. Uh, they live with us, and we kill them when we desire to kill them. Uh, but of course, as great as dogs can be and continue to be in, in, the, in aiding the hunt, we know that they can be bred to specialize in a number of key tasks. And I'd, I have a short list here that I thought we might go back and forth on again, uh, much like we did with the dinosaurs of the Flintstones. Okay. So you can, of course, uh, breed a, a dog over many generations to uh, fetch felled fowl. That's kind of a tongue twister, but yeah, you can see maybe you shoot down a bird, you don't know exactly where it went, but the dog can find it. Right. Essentially, the dog is still aiding in the hunt, mm. but it's a more specialized version of aiding in the hunt. Now, the other thing would be playing more of a role we think of uh, with cats these mm. days, uh, uh, ridding the home area or the food storage areas of rats and other vermin. Right. Uh, another one is to aid in fishing. Uh, specifically, and this uh, one of the breeds you see this with is the Newfoundland dog, mm. uh, which is a, you know akin to the Labrador Retreat. The Labrador Retriever fetches felled fowl, but the uh, uh, traditionally, but the Newfoundland dog is there to retrieve floats and ropes from dangerous icy waters. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we see lots of shepherding dogs in in world traditions that they can help control the movements and direction of flocks. Right, um, a big scary dog with a loud bark of, uh, has long been used and, uh, and and is still used to as as protection, either to protect an individual or to protect property. Yeah, and I guess this would be uh, part of a a bigger thing is just sort of like using dogs for violence or the threat of violence. So dogs used in war or fighting Mm -hmm. or in in, in combat, dogs, unfortunately, sometimes dogs uh, used to fight each other. Yeah, purely for sport, yeah. uh, which is terrible. Uh, or in other you know, equally egregious kinds of sport, like bear baiting exactly, and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, another area, though, that is is is, is not dark uh, or not not intrinsically dark is tracking because right. dogs may dogs could be used to track somebody or something for nefarious reasons, certainly. But dogs can be used to track people, say to find uh, say find individuals who've been buried uh, in uh, an avalanche, that sort of thing. Right. And then, of course, you've got the, the final version, the version that many of us today probably know the best, which is just pure companionship. Right. Dogs are a good friend. They're a good buddy. And this is where we get the, the final form of the dog, the pug, right? <laughs> <laughs> but while we often think of other animals like horses, donkeys, cattle, and stuff like this, uh, uh, clearly as draft animals, animals that are used to pull loads or as pack animals, animals that are used to carry loads, uh, animals that are there to provide motive power. We don't often think of the dog this way. And yet, nevertheless, the dog has been used for these purposes in many ways around the world all throughout history. Oh, yeah. And one of those ways is what we're going to talk about today, pairing dogs for motive power with a specific type of cooking technology, which is the turnspit, the practice of using a dog to turn a wheel like a hamster wheel to turn a rotisserie in a kitchen. Right. I mean, but before we really started researching this, the only example that would have come to mind would be sled dogs, mm-hmm. where the dog is used for locomotion, to pull a sled across snow. Yeah. I mean, there, there are plenty of examples of people using dogs to uh, to pull carts and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, and there are other— Or to carry exa- a pack. Even. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 
exactly. Uh, but later in the episode, we'll also talk about other types of more treadmill-based motive power that come from dogs. Another important thing to, to note when we're talking about all these different uh, things that dogs have been bred for, and and this is kind of this is one of those sort of overstatements of the obvious, but the the role changes the form of the dog. Mm-hmm. So like when we're talking about these dogs that are that were bred to uh, you know to catch rats and to chase vermin, we're often dealing with dogs that are that are small in stature. Mm-hmm. They can chase the rat uh, into its hiding places. Mm-hmm. Likewise the dogs that are used for tracking and, and in many cases involving uh, the hunt as well uh, are often some of the absolute best smellers and, right. are, and are just you know ideal for tracking. And and in all of this too we get into the problem of the modern world sometimes where someone will have a purebred dog, a dog that has been – whose evolution has been hijacked <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, for this specific function and then it finds itself as a pet without, a, without necessarily having an avenue for that special power that it has been given through selective breeding. Well, I mean a lot of times it's funny uh, that people will have a dog for a pet and they don't even realize what the, that dog breed that their pet is. Was, was originally bred for and so they may notice behavioral characteristics of the dogs mm-hmm. uh, that come through without knowing why that dog is like so attuned to chasing after mice or little moving objects or why that dog has to sniff everything. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard though of, of specific uh, cases where especially urban dogs mm-hmm. um, have are, you know their owners will make an effort to find outlets like find a place where they can herd a single sheep around mm-hmm. and use that energy or these groups that will go through. I think it's New York. I, I heard a radio, I think it was an NPR uh, story about this where people with uh, traditionally vermin hunting dogs will get together and basically go on a big rat chase <laughs> through the streets, <laughs> you know, because that's that's what the dog wants. Right. So we've bred plenty of breeds for different tasks. But I guess we should turn to the other half of the equation here uh, leading to the turnspit dog, which is the rotisserie. Yes, the rotisserie. So if you've been to the supermarket, I think you know the basic idea here because you've probably seen rotisserie chickens, right? Uh-huh. Where this, uh, it's a chicken on a spit and usually there are like multiple spits creating this whole carousel of rotisserie chickens and they're moving under some sort of a, a heat source, you know, be it a, a lamp or some sort of actual, uh, you know, heating element. Mm-hmm. But you've probably also seen it if you've ever seen like uh, the spit for uh, donor kebab or for euros. Uh, yes. These are traditionally done where there's a heat element on one side and there's a bunch of, you know, seasoned meat that's on a spit that constantly rotates. And the idea with the constant rotation is to provide even heat. Right. Meat is skewered and then placed over or adjacent to uh, a heat source. But then what happens if you don't turn it? You're going to get one side of the meat that's hideously burned yeah. and one side of the, the meat that is perhaps undercooked even. You, but mm. you, well, that's not what you want. You want uniform heating around the meat and within the meat. And this method actually still works. You know, one of the, the – there in Robert, do you ever encounter Steak World? The, the, you know, this whole world of like Westworld? wisdom and false wisdom about what you're supposed to do or not do with steaks. It can be a, it can be a treacherous passage. Oh, it used to when I, uh, when I still ate beef mm-hmm. and, and I would grill sometimes. I, had, I, had, I would look in a grill book and there would be a lot of wisdom there about uh-huh. how to do it. And then you go on a line and there might be, um, you know, wisdom that said the opposite. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's also a lot of like, you know, dad wisdom kind yeah. of stuff that, about this. One of, the, one of the steak myths that people often say is you 
should only turn your steak once. You know, you put it on the grill one side, let it go halfway on that side, flip it once and let it go halfway on that uh-huh. side. Uh, th- that is not good wisdom. You can turn a steak as many times as you want if you're grilling it and that actually helps the steak cook more evenly. Huh. Uh, you know, by constantly turning it, you are not letting the heat build up too much on one side and overcook that side. Okay. Well, like a similar thing I do, uh, when I do grill, I tend to do veggie grilling. Yeah. And so I'll do like a grill basket and I'll just make sure I, I stir it up. Yeah. And the same principles actually I think would apply pretty well to vegetables. Probably the more you stir them, the more evenly cooked they're going to be. But in this case, we're continuing to talk about big hunks of meat. Uh, the bigger, the better. On a spit, turning uh, so as to have that uniform cooking. But here's the thing. you got to turn that spit. And the most basic way to do that is to turn it by hand. <laughs> now, of course, later, it's no spoiler to say that eventually machines are going to come into play and do it because, again, you've been to the grocery store. You've seen machines turning rotisserie chickens. You know that that is coming. Right. Um, however, the rotisserie, uh, you know, was very much in vogue in the medieval world. And we see plenty of illustrations of their use, both both in, uh, you know, their terrestrial setting, uh, depictions of everyday medieval humans engaging in rotisserie cooking. Mm-hmm. But then you also see lots of these imagined realms of hell, too, where it, if you see a big elaborate depiction of uh, eternal damnation, there's almost certainly going to be some individual spitted uh, on, a, uh, on, a, on a long skewer and then turned over a fire. Right. The culinary traditions of the time come through in our imaginations of torment. Right. Uh, now, the word rotisserie, uh, the rotisserie concept itself, of course, is not too complicated. Mm-hmm. But the word come, uh, goes back to France in around 1450 or so. Which is ironic because while there were versions of, of turned spit roasting or, or rotisserie uh, all over Europe from the medieval period, Period, uh, and, and probably some earlier than that, but especially beginning in the medieval period, I've read that it is most common in Great Britain. That, yes. That is where spit roasting was an extremely popular form of cooking that it, like in the European continent and elsewhere in the world, people would be more likely to use like ovens mm-hmm. and enclosures to cook inside if they were going to do a, a roast of meat at all or anything like that. Apparently, for some reason, uh, English culture was just not into the ovens for roasting. They liked the open flame and the constantly turning spit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the main sources we turn to in this, yeah, they they center almost exclusively on England. Uh, That's where we look at the documentation of the the, the spit and all of these additional details about how the the, the practice changes. Well, I think that's for two reasons. Number one, spit roasting in general seems a more popular form of cooking in Great Britain. And then beyond that, where spit roasting is done, it seems like the dog was a more popular way of doing it in Great Britain than it was elsewhere. Now, one of the sources that I, I, I used in, uh, in my research here is an excellent book uh, by one B. Wilson called Consider the Fork, A History of How We Eat. And, uh, and you know, one thing that's important is even though we have this cartoony and perhaps even Flintstonian idea of meat spitted above a fire and mm-hmm. roast and turned. I think this is how the Ewoks were attempting to to uh, to consume uh, the heroes in in Star Wars, right? Uh, maybe. I mean, they've got them hanging from a stick. It would be kind of awkward. They weren't actually spitted. I guess right. They, were just they tied weren't to spitted. It. There would be a lot of like tumbling and falling around the the ropes they were hanging from. So I'm not sure how well that would work. Okay. For some reason, I thought they were going to eat somebody. I thought they. Oh, actually... they were going to eat them. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. I just don't know if they would have turned them. I think they oh. probably would have just burned them on one side and then made do. 
All right. Well, well one thing that uh, that B. Wilson points out is that the, sp- the, sp- the spit was typically located next to a fire and not over it for most of the cooking. Mm-hmm. You would only position it more over the fire toward the end to toast it, sort of like in, in an oven now you might, uh, you know, uh, you might bake something mm-hmm. and then broil it the last, you know, few minutes to get it a little crispy on top. Right. That makes sense. Putting it next to the fire, I think you could get gentler, more even heat throughout. Right. And a lot of times in England, we're talking about open hearth cooking too. Yeah. So that just makes more sense, right? The fire is in the fireplace and then your uh, your rotisserie is positioned in front of the fireplace. But for open hearth cooking, you have to understand that this means the kitchen, especially near the fireplace is going to be a sweltering environment Mm -hmm. and somebody's got to turn that spit. And according to B. Wilson, before we put the spit dogs to work turning the spit, we used turn spit boys. (laughs) Yes, it's, 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 it's 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 hilarious, and at the same time, it is so disturbing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, only only during the 16th and 17th centuries did the dogs take over the work, really, uh, and they took over the work from human children. Uh, she includes a, a quote from biography John Aubrey, who said, "Quote in olden times, the poor boys did turn the spits and licked the dripping pans." <laughs> Oh, boy, the drippings. Yeah, and uh, B describes this as perhaps the worst of the many, quote, soul-destroying jobs in the rich medieval kitchen. Uh, Here's a passage uh, from their book. Quote, by the reign of Henry VIII, the king's household had whole battalions of turnspits, charring their faces and tiring their arms to satisfy the royal appetite for roast capons and ducks, venison and beef, crammed in cubby holes to the side of the fireplace. The boys must have been near roasted themselves as they labored to roast the meats. Until the year 1530, the kitchen staff at Hampton Court worked either naked or in scanty, grimy garments. Henry VIII addressed the situation not by relieving the turnspits of their duties, but by providing the master cooks with a clothing allowance with which to keep the junior staff decently clothed and therefore even hotter. <laughs> That's horrible. I mean, this this lines up with everything I've read, that the, the turnspit role was essentially the lowest rank in yeah. the kitchen. It was the last job you'd want to have because it's like, it's not only sweltering hot, hard work. It's also incredibly dull and repetitive. You you know, you're not getting much variety. You're just standing there by a really hot fire, turning a crank at a steady pace for hours and hours at a time. Yeah. Uh, It's kind of, it's like Conan the Barbarian, you know, running the mill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's very important that the crank had to be turned at a steady rate. You couldn't have the person turning the crank take a break for a few minutes and go do something else because then the meat would burn on that side. So you had to keep it turning. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's it's grueling, uh, just monotonous uh, manual labor here. And uh, and even – it's not even just the, the big kingly houses. Even lesser houses use them. Uh, and they were, they were actually seen as acceptable well into the 18th century uh, in England uh, and, uh, and uh, also in uh, Scotland. Uh, B writes that Scottish Highlander John MacDonald, born 1741, uh, he was an orphan. And uh, at the age of five, he worked the spit in a household. 
Yeah, and I think this comes through in common expressions within the English language of the period. Like there was the expression turnspit to like refer insultingly to someone. Mm. It was essentially you would call somebody a turnspit to su- suggest they were like lowly and not worth your time, uh, that they were wretched in some way. Uh, but around the Tudor area, which was roughly like the 16th century, you know, late 1400s through the end of the 1500s, uh, technology changed the picture somewhat. Uh, for this is when kitchens in, in England started using the rotisserie spit powered by belt and dog wheel. So maybe we should take a quick break and then when we come back, we can discuss more about the turnspit dog. All right, so here's where we're going to look at the uh, turnspit dog and the wheel itself. So I guess I, I should mention a couple of sources that I used for this. One is a book by Jan Bondison called Amazing Dogs, A Cabinet of Canine Curiosities from Amberley Publishing, 2011. And another is a book by Brian D. Cummins, who is a cultural anthropologist who is focused on the relationships between humans and dogs. And this book is called Our Debt to the Dog, How the Domestic Dog Helped Shape Human Societies from Carolina Academic Press, 2013. So according to Cummins, the first published mention of turnspit dogs in history comes from a treatise published in 1576, written by an author named Johannes or John Caius, who was, quote, doctor of physique in the University of Cambridge. And this is sometimes claimed to be the first English book written about dogs. I think he actually wrote it in Latin, but it was quickly translated by an assistant into English. Um, And Cummins points out that right from the beginning, Caius identifies the turnspit dog, or what he spells the Turnspeat dog uh, as a breed, which Cummins thinks is probably incorrect. And we'll come back to that more later, whether the Turnspit dog was a distinct breed of dog or not. But John Caius appears to have gotten a lot of things wrong about dogs in his book about dogs. He apparently didn't know much about dogs, but he's like, yeah, I'll write a book anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, this uh, this being the first mention in literary history, I guess we should take a look at what he says. Uh, and so the, the text reads, Of the dog called Turnspeet in Latin veruversator, there is comprehended under the curs of the coarsest kind a certain dog in kitchen service excellent. For when any meat is to be roasted, they go into a wheel which they turning round about with the weight of their bodies so diligently look to their business that no drudge nor scullion can do the feat more cunningly, whom the popular sort hereupon call turnspeats. Now, that is that is interesting, even if there, as we'll discuss, there may be problems with it, because it does imply that this is not just, you didn't just grab a random animal mm-hmm. and throw it in and just see what it did in the wheel. Now, the, the dog seems to have been trained to 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 proceed on the wheel at a, a, a regular pace mm-hmm. so as to properly cook the meat. Right. Caius says that it's not just that the dog can turn the wheel. It's that the dog turns the wheel and the spit at a better rate than the human cooks in the kitchen do, which I think a lot of people can probably relate to the idea of a dog me- being more reliable than a human. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the premise here, I think, is that a dog – runs inside a wheel like a hamster wheel in order to turn a belt that turns a spit to ensure the even cooking on all sides of the roast. So beginning a few centuries later in the 1700s, 
more records of turnspit dogs show up in the literature, including a formal breed categorization by Carl Linnaeus, the Swedish scholar who established a lot of important conventions of taxonomy and nomenclature in zoology and botany. And so, again, I think Linnaeus here is identifying the turnspit dog as a distinct breed of dog. Uh, Bondison points out that Linnaeus's name for the breed is Canis vertigus, or dizzy dog, <laughs> a name used in uh, several English sources is the uh, vernipater cur. So here's Bondison on, on Linnaeus's description here. Quote, small, long-bodied, and bandy-legged. Most had drooping ears, but some had ears standing up. Some turnspit dogs had gray and white fur, often with a white blaze down the face. Others were black or reddish-brown. There may as well have been several other colors. Uh, Brian Cummins says that the most common characteristics of the dog identified as a breed are small size, short legs, muscular, especially for their size, and weight estimates are kind of all over the place. They range from like 14 to 35 pounds, uh, good cardiovascular conditioning for obvious reasons, and generally being terrier-like. And that makes sense because a terrier would already be a breed that is um, uh, would be, we're talking with breeds that are are small in stature. What you utilize mainly is vermin um, uh, uh, chasers. I don't actually know, but that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Well, I know there's like the rat terrier. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, so Charles Darwin even made reference to the turnspit dog in On the Origin of Species. I had forgotten about this. Huh. but So, of course, one of Darwin's main arguments uh, for his theory of evolution by natural selection was the artificial breeding of animals such as cattle and dogs, showing the descent with modification was possible by the guidance of human breeders, and thus it could also be possible by the guidance of the natural environment. That was the point of comparison he was trying to make. And so Darwin writes that in domesticated strains of animals, we constantly see examples of adaptation, quote, not indeed to the animal's or plant's own good, but to man's use or fancy. Some variations useful to him have probably arisen suddenly or by one step. So it has probably been with the turnspit dog. Hmm. So we know that in the, the middle of the 1800s when Darwin's writing about this, it would have been a common enough – uh, like a well-known enough phenomenon to have a turnspit dog working in a kitchen that he could just make casual reference to it and people would know what he was talking about. Oh, yes, that dog that is so well adapted to turning a wheel in kitchens. Ah, so But the question kind of becomes, is the turnspit dog like a dog? Are these dogs bred for this work or are you merely selecting dogs to fulfill the role of the turnspit dog? Right. And I think it's possible that it's some combination of the two, right? That dogs with initial bits of characteristics were selected for the job early on and then maybe they were bred to bring out certain characteristics that made them especially good wheel turners. Right. And, and this would be the same process that you would get, say, a good rat chasing dog. Right. You can imagine like early on people saying, I need some dogs to go catch those rats. Get me some short-legged dogs. Right. And then, you know, the the, the, the breeding commences and you get uh, increasingly breeds of short-legged dogs that have a real uh, tenacity for chasing rats. Right. If you've got a batch of them, maybe the two that catch the most rats, you breed them together and mm-hmm. that makes the next generation. Uh, at the time, an author named J.G. Wood mentions the turnspit dog in his Illustrated Natural History in 1853. Uh, but he writes that by his time, the dog had become rare and while it had previously been very common, it then existed only in isolated regions. 
But in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, turnspit dogs were extremely common in Great Britain. Uh, uh, Bondison writes that uh, they were especially common in the west of England, particularly in the city of Bristol and in Wales, especially South Wales. Uh, Bondison writes, quote, In 1639, when the Cornishman Peter Mundy visited Bristol, he was amazed that there was, quote, scarce a house that hath not a dog to turn the spit in a little wooden wheel. So he's not just talking about palaces or, or like inns with yeah, big kitchens there. He's saying scarcely a house. Yeah. So that's where it was apparently most common. But though it was less common, there are still records that there were turnspit dogs outside of Great Britain in places like France where there were uh, shin tourne broches or uh, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Holland, and in North America. There are even references to turnspit dogs in Ben Franklin's own Pennsylvania Gazette. Ah, but, I mean, we should recognize uh, something. So Cummins characterizes the turnspit dog's work as often quite wretched for the dog. So they'd, they'd be having to power a wheel by walking essentially inside the wheel for hours at a time. These roasts take a long time to cook. Uh, and they were near the heat of the fire, which meant that their work was sweltering and they were often dehydrated and they can't take breaks because the wheel has to keep going. Uh, well, they can in some cases. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, generally, the dog wheel was hung suspended from the ceiling next to the fireplace. Yeah, and I believe there are woodcuts that kind of show this as well. Like it almost looks like something you would see on a Cracker Barrel wall, right? Yes, you know? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Except it has a living dog in it turning uh, a crank. Um, yeah, this is one of the things that's so interesting about this is all these other categories we've looked at, uh, or at least you know discussed in, in passing, in which we have bred a dog to to fulfill a, a specific task. Mm -hmm. Those tasks are exclusively, I think, in the wild, though. You know, like it's some version of the thing they would do, be it hunting a rat or fetching a, a a bird that's been shot out of the sky with with bow or uh, or buckshot you know or swimming Usually, yeah. or even swimming after fishing lures or or even pulling a sled at least it is it is out in an environment it is running across the countryside uh, all in in this kind of artificially uh, constructed pack structure well yeah you know i would say even for more indoor dogs like companion dogs that sit on your lap and cuddle with you right. i mean that does seem more analogous to some kind of natural behaviors, you know, like din snuggling behaviors. Yeah, exactly. Uh, th this sort of like being trapped in a kitchen in a wheel, turning the wheel does seem more estranged from the natural uh, habitat and behaviors of a dog in the wild than any of these other uses I can think of. It is at best almost a animal cruelty and probably just animal cruelty. Oh, yeah. I mean, in many cases, surely. I mean, it's hard to know because on one hand, like a lot of dogs do seem to kind of like enjoy having a task to do. Right. But this seems like it's really hard work that is sustained for a long time that like there are lots of stories of the dogs not wanting to do it. Like yes. they would try to flee. Like they would – because dogs are intelligent. Yeah. And so one of the details I was reading is that you would have the turnspit dog that I get – you know, it's not in the wheel all the time. Mm -hmm. One presumes that it's just sort of either hanging out in the kitchen or around the house. And then if the dog begins to observe the telltale signs of a roast – being prepared, uh -huh. 
uh, it will run off and hide because it's no, it knows what's coming. Yeah, and there are explicit uh, tales of, of cruelty in some cases at least, like where authors at the time write that it, some cruel cooks, if a dog didn't keep the wheel turning at a satisfactory rate, that mean cook would put a hot coal into the wheel with Ugh. the dog so the dog would be made to run to escape the coal, which continually tumbled in the wheel after it, which obviously is horrible. On the other hand, it, it doesn't seem like it was always equally bad everywhere. Like some luckier dogs worked in pairs, trading off in shifts so mm -hmm. that one could rest while the other worked. Uh, maybe maybe they would have a rest day while the other worked for a day or they could trade off, you know, and I don't know, by the hour or something like that. Right. So there is the, there is the possibility for a less cruel model of it. And yet at the same time, as we'll discuss later, there there were individuals who 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 specifically pointed out the practice as cruelty. Yes. And as, as one rare piece of good news in this story, in the 1756 Sinographia, Carl Linnaeus, uh, again, the, the Swedish scholar, wrote that when he was writing about turnspit dogs that as a reward for their hard work, turnspit dogs would often get to eat a piece of the steak or the oh, roast. Oh, well, that's good. You know, I guess, well, I doubt that the, the cook who's putting the hot coal in there with them is also giving them a taste of the roast. But uh, I, I imagine kitchen to kitchen, it would vary. To give a bit of flavor about what this was like to see in person from, from people who were there witnessing it uh, firsthand, uh, I want to read one often cited passage that comes from a work called Anecdotes of Dogs by Edward Jesse from the 19th century. Uh, so here's what Jesse writes. How well do I recollect in the days of my youth watching the operations of a turnspit at the house of a worthy old Welsh clergyman in Worcestershire? As he had several boarders as well as day scholars, his two turnspits had plenty to do. They were long-bodied, crooked-legged, and ugly dogs with a suspicious, unhappy look about them, as if they were weary of the task they had to do and expected every moment to be seized upon to perform it. Cooks in those days were very cross, and if the poor animal, wearied with having a larger joint than usual to turn, stopped for a moment, the voice of the cook might be heard rating him in no very gentle terms. When we consider that a large solid piece of beef would take at least three hours before it was properly roasted, we may form some idea of the task a dog has to perform in turning a wheel during that time. A pointer has pleasure in finding game. The terrier worries rats with considerable glee. The greyhound pursues hares with eagerness and delight, and the bulldog even attacks bulls with the greatest of energy, while the poor turnspit performs his task by compulsion, like a culprit on a treadwheel, subject to scolding or beating if he stops a moment to rest his weary limbs, and then kicked about the kitchen when his task is over. That, that's some stark condemnation. And, and of course, anecdotally, it does, uh, it does bring to mind all of the popular chef TV reality shows in which the chef is, uh, is just nasty to humans. Uh, you know, one can imagine how nasty a chef could be, uh, the sort of stereotypical TV chef could be to the, the, poor, uh, the poor spit dog. I wonder why is that such a, a, a common stereotype of the angry yelling chef who's mean to all the cooks working for them? I don't uh, know. Is that, is that just an accident, a cultural contingency or does, is, does that grow naturally out of the kind of work that happens in kitchens maybe with the heat and the rapid pace of work and everything? I don't know. It would be interesting to hear from people because I know it – I mean I've heard shows where people are talking about uh, like regional differences. Mm -hmm. um, Goodness me, I'm, I'm terrible at remembering what podcasts I've listened to before, what, what radio shows. But I specifically remember listening to uh, a show. No, it was a documentary. 
it was it was visual uh, <laughs> about um, uh, I believe it was a British couple that had moved to Thailand uh, to open a, a Thai restaurant, and mm-hmm. they were using Thai chefs. And I believe it was uh, the, the the wife was uh, was Thai, and the the husband uh, was was uh, British. Mm-hmm. And so the, he was used to the, the more British kitchen culture. And when they when they were setting up a shop in Thailand, like she advised him, uh, "Look, you can't yell at the staff like you you did uh, back in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a different culture here. If you yell at them, they just won't come back to work the next day." So uh, that anecdote in that show would lead me to believe. That it, it does going it is going to vary greatly from culture to culture, and maybe what we see on TV is is largely a product of sort of the uh, you know the big city high cuisine in um, you know major metropolitan parts of Europe and the United States. Yeah, or maybe even something specifically about like angry British food cu- cuisine culture. I don't yeah. know because almost all the angry chefs I can think of are like British guys. Yeah, I want to see one the gentle chef, <laughs> but maybe it just takes forever for the, for the food to come out. Oh. Uh, I th- well, way. I mean, you never really know what they were like actually in their work. But I mean, as far as TV personas come along, there are some gentle chefs. I think of Paul Prudhomme, you know, he, yeah. he always seemed like such a lovely, gentle soul. Uh, but I, I wanted to turn back to Turnspit Dogs for a second here. Uh, so there's a fact about them that's cited in, in multiple sources that I thought was interesting, which is that apparently it was a well-known custom on Sundays – to take turnspit dogs out of the kitchen and bring them to church with you, uh, not just to have as companions at church, but specifically to be used, quote, as foot warmers. <laughs> foot warmers, I guess. You, so you put your feet on the dog and the dog is warm. Maybe I assume it's cold in church. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, I don't know, lessens the pain of going to church somewhat. I guess. I mean, it sounds like a step up for the dog, uh-huh. uh, but not that that's saying much. Though this actually led to a number of popular church jokes at the expense of the poor turnspit dogs. Okay. Uh, Bondison notes uh, a couple of these. Uh, I'll read a quote uh, from, from Jan Bondison, quote, According to an 18th century joke, the Bishop of Gloucester once preached to a church in Bath, uttering the line, it was then that Ezekiel saw the wheels. So this is the passage from the prophet Ezekiel. He mm-hmm. sees the wheels coming in the sky. And, uh, and Bondison continues, at the mention of this dreaded word, all the turnspit dogs ran for the door, <laughs> their tails between their legs. Uh, and then uh, Bonison mentions that another version of the story has the bishop uh, talking about uh, the horrors of hell where there's like roasting and turning on a spit. And again, the mention of these words sends all the foot warmer dogs running to escape. And it's it's a clever joke, but it does get back to the idea that the dogs, dogs are intelligent and dogs would – Pick up on the cues. They might well pick up on the on particular words mm-hmm. like this, uh, but but even on I think even the smaller signs, like there's just just little clues that uh, everyone is preparing for a feast. Right now, Robert, I think you turned up some examples of other animals that were used in a similar fashion? Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is something that B brings up uh, in, in their book uh, because uh, like we've been touching on, the, the dog was awfully smart, uh, perhaps too smart for the work and could run and hide. Uh, so uh, there were some who said that the turn spit goose was the preferred method. <laughs> Uh, that you would get uh, you would get a goose in there, and it would perform better and longer, uh, and would be less prone to outthink the chefs. So we have thus far we have turnspit children, turnspit dogs, and the turnspit goose. 
But of course, there was like there was an arc of the Turnspit Dog. The Turnspit Dog, as a convention, came and went. Uh, Jan Bondison writes that in 1750, uh, Turnspit Dogs would be found all over the place in Great Britain. You know, extremely common. By 1850, people still knew about them. It was like a, a thing you could make reference to, and and people knew what it was. But they'd become more scarce at that point. And by 1900, they had almost completely vanished. There there were just a few here and there left. Uh, and of course, the main reason is the accre- increasing availability of mechanical alternatives like clock jacks, which we will talk about more in a bit. But there was also an accompanying shift in social norms. I think not just against animal cruelty, which was a thing that changed somewhat in social conventions over time. But by the middle of the 19th century, when turnspit dogs were increasingly rare, to be seen with a turnspit dog in your kitchen came to be interpreted as a sign of poverty, of sort of backwardness or old-fashionedness, mm. or just of eccentricity. It was the kind of thing you might have, like you're saying, at the at the Cracker Barrel wall, you know, yeah. like people putting up weird stuff, you know, having a strange attraction at their inn or restaurant. Uh, you could have a turnspit dog that would be like, isn't that quaint, the, uh, the old-school turnspit dog? Yeah, like this would be even like today, of course, even more so. Like this would be a moment in a horror film. Yeah, you have uh, you know you, you, the couple, young couple, their car breaks down, and they're invited into the you know the warm uh, uh, you know uh, living room of uh, this uh, eccentric individual, and there on the wall is a turnspit dog running in its wheel uh, to uh, operate the rotisserie. Right, it's a sign you should turn around and go back. Right. Yeah. Now, we'll come back to the question of whether the turnspit dog was actually a breed of dog or not. But Bondison argues that the disuse of the wheel turned spits over time, you know, again, by the beginning of the 20th century, they'd almost completely vanished, uh, that the disuse of this technology led to the extinction of the breed of dog known as the turnspit dog, uh, since the looks and the temperament of the dog made them mostly unattractive as pets. In fact, one of the extremely few records of turnspit dogs being kept as pets after the decline of their role in the kitchens is that Queen Victoria herself kept three, quote, turnspit tykes as personal pets at Windsor Castle. Hmm. So whatever you think of Queen Victoria otherwise, she she took in some turnspit tykes. Well, yeah, that was pretty decent. And you know what? It also speaks, we touched on the cleverness that would still be innate in the turnspit dog, but also like it it also shows that the dog's other longstanding ability uh, could not be bred out of it. Its ability to bond with humans, yeah. to you know, to look up at humans with those uh, those eyes that seem you know almost you know watery with devotion and emotion, and and, uh, and enabling this bond to form, and, and and indeed a bond to form with the most powerful individual uh, in said country. Uh, the bond between them and the lowest uh, domesticated animal. Well, you know, you you could identify many of the great powers of the dog as a species. You know, they have an amazing sense of smell. You can you can see their determination and dedication and hard work in, in mm-hmm. many cases yeah. to the t- to the tasks they set to. But I think it could easily be argued that the ultimate superpower of the dog is their ability to form emotional connections with humans yeah. more so than any other. Yeah. After all, they've they've lived alongside us so long, yeah. longer, again, than any of the domesticated animals. All right, on that note, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the legacy of the turnspit dog. All 
All right, we're back. All right, I think we should talk a bit about uh, the the legacy of the turnspit dog in English literature because references to them show up in English literature roughly from like the 1500s when the turnspit dog first became popular – Roughly to the 1800s. It kind of cuts off after – in the 20th century. And it makes sense, right? Because if, this, if – especially in, in, in Britain, if this was something that was to be found in pretty much every household or in a lot of households anyway, mm-hmm. it would be a common uh, – frame. there would be a common frame of reference. It would be a common even a, perhaps a metaphor for expressing something about the human condition. And so it might not surprise you that since it goes back to the 1500s, it shows up in Shakespeare. Ah. In Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors, Dromeo of Syracuse. Hughes says, I amazed ran from her as a witch, and I think if my breast had not been made of faith and my heart of steel, she had transformed me into a curtail dog and made me turn in the wheel. Ah. So curtail dog there uh, refers, I think, to the docking of the tail, and curtailed, like cut off, and, and mm-hmm. that seems to have something to do with the social class or status or value of the dogs, like the uh, the, the more valuable breeds that would, would have belonged to rich people, I think, were more likely to have the full tail, whereas the, the tail was curtailed in breeds that were maybe for working, like in the kitchens. Ah, that's where we get the word curtail. Yes. That, oh, my goodness. All right. All, all, all sorts of discoveries are taking place with this topic. Well, actually, I want to go back. I'm not sure that's where we get <laughs> the word curtail. I mean, I think that means cut short. Right. But like, yeah. But let's just say that is where we get Okay. <laughs> Uh, but by Brian Cummins' account, usually a curtailed dog in Shakespearean references is a reference to a turnspit dog. There's another quote in The Merry Wives of Windsor, quote, Hope is a curtail dog in some affairs, and Cummins links this to the futility of hope in some cases, like to the futility of the work in the turnspit wheel that mm. it just goes on and on. Another one is that some authors have even alleged that the saying, every dog has its day – comes from the turnspit dog tradition. Uh, I think this is not proven. I can't find strong evidence linking the saying to the roasting spit. But uh, the the idea is that since many kitchens would have two dogs – in some cases, they would trade off every other day. So you'd have a day where you work in the wheel and then you'd have a day of rest. And from what I can tell, this English expression does probably show up during the Tudor period in the 1500s, which is also the time when turnspit dog wheels became common in England. But again, I can't prove that's where the phrase comes from. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's this handy example of, uh, of, of cruelty <laughs> right. in every uh, household. And, uh, and, of course, it makes its way into language or in, or in this case, potentially. Yeah, unfortunately, it's like every reference to it <laughs> in English literature is to the fact that it is wretched work, that it's something you don't want to have to do, that it's hard, that it can be cruel. In fact, even not just uh, not just hard work and cruel, but Sisyphean, literally, oh, yeah. uh, because uh, Bondison also quotes a, a quote a rare collection of poems entitled Norfolk Drollery, and uh, here's the quote: "This I confess, he goes around around a hundred times and never touches ground, and in the middle circle of the air he draws a circle like a conjurer. With eagerness he still does forward tend like Sisyphus, whose journey has no end." Sisyphus, of course, is the the what the Titan that is uh, punished by having to push the rock up the the hill and then it rolls back down. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a Titan. Was it I, Titan? You're probably right okay. about that. Yeah, but in Greek mythology, yes. yeah, having to push the boulder up the hill mm-hmm. only to have it roll back down again every. 
every time. He's somebody who, who ticked off a god. Right. I know that for sure. But it's interesting because then while, while mythology is usually the, the handy metaphor to turn to, mm-hmm. it's like for this period of time, you had uh, replaced Sisyphus. You'd replaced myth because you had the real-life Sisyphus installed in your home. That's the epic struggle that everybody can relate to because they've seen one of these in a kitchen. Uh, and it turns out we mentioned this earlier, but there were other similar dog-powered machines in human history. For some reason, always especially in Wales. I don't know why, but Wales and Western England seemed like the epicenter for dog-powered machines. <laughs> uh, so you had dog-powered butter churns, dog-powered fruit presses, dog-powered grain wheels, even water wheels to draw water up from a well. And then later I was reading about how in England and in uh, the United States there were a few examples of dog powered printing presses. Oh, wow. Like it, I mean, it really sounds like we're almost getting into the realm of dog punk. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that could be a great like whole family plus dog Halloween costume. It's <laughs> some kind of dog punk outfit. I actually, and that someone should do this. You could have a, a scenario where it's like a dog punk world, but of course the dogs are our heroes and they, of course, escape and rebel. So sort of like dog punk meets rats of Nim mm-hmm. basically writes itself. Yeah. Uh, so we, we talked before about the question of whether the turnspit dog was actually a breed of dog. There's been a lot of speculation about which dog breeds most mm. resemble or are most closely related to the turnspit dog. Uh, according to Bondison, uh, the dachshund and the basset hound have been proposed, but uh, Bondison thinks these are bad candidates. Maybe better candidates for relations are the uh, Glen of Imal Terrier, which uh, greatly resembles historical re- reports of the turnspit dogs, though has a more terrier-like head. And this was, but this was also a dog that was definitely used uh, to hunt vermin. Yes. So we're getting into that area, too, where perhaps this is a dog that had a dual role. Like we have these rat catcher dogs. I need something to turn this wheel. Go grab one of those rat catcher dogs and throw it in the wheel. Yeah, I think that's highly plausible, especially early on, you Mm -hmm. know, and maybe they were bred more for wheel duties as time went on. Another uh, better candidate also is apparently the Welsh Corgi. Oh, the Corgis. Which is ironic because uh, of the famous Welsh Corgis who are royal companions at the castles of the British monarchy, uh, which might sort of fit with the story of the 19th century Queen Victoria taking in turnspit dogs as pets. Oh, I mean, because perhaps you end up with another selective breeding situation. The cutest of the, the turnspit dogs are taken in by the queen and you get uh, you get corgis. I can see it, though. I don't know how far back corgis go. Corgis yeah, that's, might that's predate. Yeah, that may yeah. not actually match up with the, the, the corgi lineage. Um, uh, perhaps we'll hear from corgi breeders on that. <laughs> right. Uh, so Cummins ultimately argues that given all of the disparate reports about size, appearance, coat, and so forth, that the turnspit dog, uh, in his mind, probably was not a distinct breed of dog, but rather was any small dog that could be trained to turn the wheel, though he believes they were mostly derived from terrier breeds. So we've got these different – I think it's not fully settled whether the turnspit dog was a breed of dog or was in any large part maybe sort of a breed of dog or just was was a class of types of dogs. Yeah, like we might be in that area where it was on its way in some regions towards becoming a breed. Mm-hmm. But uh, ultimately and thankfully the practice does go away. There is one known taxidermied turnspit dog at the uh, Abergavenny Museum in Wales. It's named Whiskey. I've included a picture for you to look at here, Robert. I mean, it's a small dog with short kind of bent or crooked legs. And it is a cute dog. I could see a dog like this, uh, you know, er, er, earning its way out of the wheel and into the hearts of a queen. 
Mm-hmm. Now, B writes that turnspit dogs were used in America into the 19th century, and uh, and that you had uh, an early animal rights advocate by the name of Henry Berg who lobbied against their use, and he ultimately succeeded in bringing some shame to the practice, but with limited consequences. Yeah, there were there were at least some cases where he like identified turnspit dogs that were being used in some cities as like as where there was obvious cruelty. Yeah, and he like took the people who were who owned the dogs to court. Yeah, and he would make surprise visits in kitchens to catch the dogs in their use. And reportedly, uh, B writes, in some cases he found that the dogs had been replaced by young black children. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. It, Cummins writes about that too, that in some cases when the dogs were removed, uh, that human children were used in the role, especially black children, and that Berg tried to uh, to advocate on behalf of children who were put through this cruelty too, in some cases arguing that, like, will children not be given the same rights as an animal? Yeah. Thankfully, however, you know, even though we, we started with children and then dogs entered the picture, then geese entered the picture, thankfully going back to children is not the change that ultimately brought the end of the turnspit dog. Right. Uh, Just as dogs replaced some human turnspits early on, automotive power ultimately replaced the majority of dogs. And and it started, not the majority, but it started somewhat as early as the 16th century and would just go on to replace dogs more and more for spit turning as time went on. So Bondison writes that uh, Leonardo da Vinci, of course, invented an automatic spit turning device that was called a smoke jack. And it worked sort of on the principle of a windmill except inside a chimney. So smoke and hot air rising from the fireplace up into the chimney would rotate a turbine with several blades. And then the turbine driven by the smoke and the rising gas Gases would generate rotational energy that could be transferred by belt or chain to the roasting spit. Yeah, it's a clever, clever invention that would later see some use. One of the drawbacks to it, of course, is that you do have to uh, you have to feed a lot of fuel to the fire. You have to keep the fire up. You have to keep that updraft powerful enough to turn the machinery. Yeah, there were several problems with the smoke jack model. Uh, uh, It was improved upon incrementally in later decades after da Vinci's invention of it. Uh, Bondison notes that records indicate smoke jacks were in use in England during the time of Samuel Pepys, who was an English naval administrator and prolific diarist Uh, whose journals give us a window into much about what English life was like at the time, which was like 1633 to 1703. But even these later improved models of smoke jacks were still dirty, they were unreliable, and yeah, they were required a very hot fire and a lot of, you know, putting off, so a lot of fuel essentially to get them spinning at the right rate. But even with those limitations, they could do the work of a lot of dogs. Bondison writes, quote, in the early 19th century, Lothar Castle near Penrith had a particularly advanced smoke jack uh, driving eight horizontal and four vertical spits, saving the labor of not less than 12 turnspit dogs. But another automated solution, and I think the one that ultimately really replaced turnspit dogs, uh, was also in existence by the 16th century, and this was the clock jack. Yeah, sometimes called the the meat jack. Uh, it had other names as well. Yeah, the clock jacks 
used a suspended weight or a spring that you would wind up at the beginning of the cooking process to store potential energy that would slowly be released with a steady rotation mechanism. And it worked much better than any of the other known methods. Yeah, basically it consisted of a weight suspended from a cord and wound around a cylinder. The weight slowly descended. The power transferred through a series of cogs and pulleys and powered one or even multiple spits. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there was even a bell included, which would ring when it stopped, when the food was done even. Uh, so some commentators have likened it to a modern microwave in that respect. Oh, that's interesting. But did it have a popcorn function? Uh, no, it did not. I bet not. Uh, so you might be asking the question, wait a second, if clock jacks existed since the 16th century, uh, as long as smoke jacks and almost as long as the turnspit dogs, like why were inferior turnspit engines such as dogs or smoke jacks or whatever used at all? And the main answer here is cost. You know, clock jacks, especially early on, were expensive. They These were mechanisms that had intricate, you know, clockwork-ish designs which were too expensive for standard homes and inns. But I think as time went on, as they became cheaper to produce or mass produce, you could get them cheaper and more people would replace their turnspit dogs with an automatic system like a clock jack. And indeed, B points out that uh, by around 1748, the meat jack was just highly praised uh, as, as a method to keep the meat turning. Uh, and you actually would find them in nearly half of English households. Uh, and that's of all households, not just the rich ones, uh, but, but just all English households. Uh, the, you know, these culinary robots, as B calls them, uh, they, they did the job. They didn't invoke even a tinge of shame, uh, and it wouldn't run off and hide like a turnspit dog. And we know this. We, we know that it was in, in, in pretty much half of all households based on uh, probate inventories of the deceased. So this would be where you know they go. They had records of what were in the households of people who had died, mm. and so they knew like this house had uh, had a uh, had a clock jack. This house had a clock jack, and ultimately we can say like half of England had a clock jack in their house, thus driving away the necessity of the turnspit dog. So you would hope that that what would have happened historically is that there was a great awakening of people, you know, turning away from animal cruelty and human cruelty uh, for these, these biologically powered spits and saying, hey, there's a better way. But no, it sounds like probably it was more like technology and economics that yeah. played the main role in replacing dogs and humans to turn spits. Yeah, and so you you, you had a you know, number of these gadgets that came into play. Not only the clockwork uh, jack, but also the smoke jack, which we mentioned earlier, had become uh, the designs had become better. Uh, still, there were certain design problems with it, but you saw them implemented. Um, other English inventors experimented with steam, water, clockwork, uh, various like even more elaborate clockwork wonders. Uh, spit roasting meat was just such a central part of the English way of life. Uh, that it attracted the sort of endless innovation that we see now in things like coffee preparation. You yeah. Know? Like everybody's got to have their coffee. And so you see so many endless varieties of ways to make a cup of coffee and still continue to see new innovations uh, in coffee percolation design. Right. Uh, and then, of course, once electricity came along, I think that was a huge game changer, right? Because right. now rotisseries, pretty much all of them are going to be electrically powered. Right. And the other big factor that B points out is that, uh, it, you know, with, with with all these jacks, we had a, an increasingly high-tech invention, 
based around rather old cooking methodology, the like open hearth cooking, Mm -hmm. cooking something in front of that big open fireplace. But then this went out of style during the mid-19th century, and so did the meat jack and its related meat-turning robots. Though, of course, uh, just spit roasting itself, of course, did not go away. Spit roasting itself lives on as do, do various mechanical rotisseries. Yeah. You can you can buy them for your backyard grill. You can buy you can you know certainly you can see them at the grocery store or the butcher shop or uh, anywhere uh, chickens or other meats are are you know turning about and cooking in their own juices. But thankfully, uh, you will not find dogs turning tiny wheels to power them. I gotta say this one was interesting, but it tugged on my heartstrings. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, in a way, it's this is human techno history, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have you have to consider the light and the dark. Uh, yeah, but I mean, also just seeing the way changes in technology and culture are constantly interacting with each other as time goes yeah. on. The way the technology influences what's culturally appropriate and acceptable and that and then, and then cultural values affecting what kind of technology is in demand. Yeah, and then also I, I'm just so interested in the fact that you had uh, some very old technologies that were remaining the same, but this one aspect of the process kept getting altered. Mm-hmm. You know, like the cauldron, the spit itself, uh, there's nothing uh, modern about that. The hearth itself did not change for so long, but there was like a uh, one pivot uh, in the process, that was where you saw all this innovation, and then ultimately everything else changes as well. Fortunately, now in the 21st century, we can cook all of our food in the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And hopefully, I, I think the plan is, so this November, of course, we are doing uh, a lot of food-based episodes. Uh, that you know, We'll do food-based episodes the rest of the, the year as well, uh, as we, we have already. Uh, but we wanted to really focus in on food, given that this is a, a period of feast, uh, uh, traditionally and especially in America. So hopefully we're going to get to the microwave this month as well. It'll melt your brain in the best way. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'm sure everybody has some thoughts on this, uh, You know, whether you're a fan of uh, spitted turning meat or a fan of dogs, or like uh, you know, all of us, uh, you know, someone who is uh, you know starkly um, offended by the prospect of putting children to work, five-year-olds to work in a ch- in a in a kitchen, uh, performing manual labor. Uh, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us a number of different ways. Uh, you can also find the podcast at uh, inventionpod.com. That's where they all are. But you can also find the podcast everywhere you find podcasts these days wherever it is just make sure you subscribe uh, and check out the episodes and if you dig them leave us some stars uh, leave us a nice review that really helps us out huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.